back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is, again, your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And I'm pleased to be joined this week by Father David Guffey, who is a Holy Cross priest, as well as a 1984 and 1990 graduate of Notre Dame. And he is the National Director of Family Theater Productions. And we're going to be talking to him about his life, vocation, and some of the upcoming exciting projects that he has. So, Father David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Good to be with you. We like to begin by giving us some of your background. So, could you give us some insight into where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Sure. I grew up in a very small town in western Illinois called Mount Carroll, Illinois. I went to high school there and then found my way to the University of Notre Dame as an undergraduate. I studied American studies as an undergraduate. I worked at the campus radio station, logged a lot of time in the newsroom there, <laughs> and um, and really loved journalism and writing. But I I kind of I found my vocation at Notre Dame. I uh, fell in love with the campus atmosphere, with the the accessibility of of the Eucharist and the grotto service projects that I was involved with. So I, after I graduated from Notre Dame, I joined the congregation of Holy Cross mm-hmm. and then went through the seminary. My first assignment as a priest was at a uh, hospitality center that Holy Cross sponsors. It, the place is called Andre house in Phoenix, Arizona. Sure. And I really love that work. It was work with homeless people. We, we served an evening meal. We gave away clothing. We had a job service and a number of other services. And I really love that work. As part of my work there, we had to build a new facility. And part of that is, you know, getting your story told. So I started taking workshops from media about, about from local media about how to work with the press. And, you know, we, we raised the money. The, the hospitality center that's there now at Andre House is what we built in, in the early 90s. But what I really came to see was that the moving visual image was really what shaped people's hearts and minds. Hmm. And I got very interested in how cinema, and I use that term really as, as a way, a shorthand for the moving visual, the moving visual image with sound, hmm. um, how cinema, television, internet, film uh, was being used to tell the story of the church and the story of justice and the story of peace. Well, I went from Andre House and I did I did eight years working in religious formation for the Congregation of Holy Cross, two years at Notre Dame, and then six years as director of novices in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Those were wonderful years, but I continued to pay attention to media, especially Catholic media. So when I finished my terms as novice director, I put in a, 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 in a, a proposal to study uh, film and television production, which I did. I went to, I studied film and television production at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And I got an MFA degree in 2008. Hmm. And from there, I started working at Family Theater Productions, which is a media company that is sponsored by the Congregation of Holy Cross, um, one of our subsidiaries, Holy Cross Family Ministries. Uh, Family Theater Productions does a number of different things in media. It's right here in Los Angeles. In fact, our, our office is on Sunset Boulevard. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's been wonderful. I've been I've been at Family Theater since two thousand eight. I've been the national director at Family Theater since two thousand fourteen. Okay, well, great. Thank you for that for that background. When you think about your 
childhood and and your vocation eventually to the priesthood what were some of the important moments that you think gave a gave a hint that uh, maybe someday you'd be called to be a priest any important moments or people during that time well my parents were people of faith uh, we always went to mass and my mother was forever dragging us, uh, me, my sister and I, to take groceries to somebody who was a shut-in or just mm-hmm. to visit elderly neighbors. So it was sort of in their blood. A couple things really struck me. One, I, I was really uh, taken with the faith life at Notre Dame. It's the first time I really ever got to know priests as people. Yeah. And that made it real for me. But I also really started to ask the question of what does it mean to live faith for me, not not for everybody, but what would it mean for David Guffey to live the faith? Something that really stuck with me, my sophomore year, I did an urban plunge. I don't know if they still do those at the Center for Social Concerns. I believe so. Yes, they do. Yeah. Well, I went into Chicago and for, you know, for me growing, I've only been in Chicago four or five times in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in Western Illinois and it was in a bad area of Chicago, the kind of area that I was told never to go into. But we went and we met these incredible people doing service work. And there were one one of the last stops we made on this urban plunge was on a, was, was on a Sunday night. And we, we went to a youth detention center and there was a, we met with a chaplain there who was a a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago. And he talked about his work with, with kids in gangs and trying to help them get out of gang life and how to deal with addictions and all the, the griefs and sorrows that they had in their life. And one of the people in the urban plunge asked father, well, how many kids do you think real you really changed? How many kids do you think you really impacted the point where, where they really they really changed their life? Mm-hmm. And he said, "You mean that I know for sure?" And he and he said, "Yeah." And he said, "Maybe one." Hmm. And um, the person said, "Well, why do you do it?" And he said, "Well, there's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that w- when I was in prison, you visited me." And I visit them because they they are, are my brothers. Hmm. And I need to visit them and love them and care for them just as Christ would. And that just stuck with me. Uh, yeah. Took me completely out of thinking of utility or being able to change the world to just wanting to love. And I've seen that kind of witness in so many lay people and so many and so many of my Masters of Divinity classmates that I had at the University of Notre Dame when I did my, my MDiv there. And that I've seen ever since, but that really got me thinking about, you know, really listening and making choices for God. I didn't really join the seminary. I didn't even, even talk to a vocation director till my junior year. Okay. And because I always thought I, I always thought I'd be an attorney, and I took the LSAT and I did pretty well, and I had all the law school information. I was just getting ready to fill it all out, and I said this idea wouldn't go away. So finally I went across the lake in the basement of Moreau seminary and I met with the vocation director. I was scared to death. He'd either kick me out cause he'd think you want to be a priest, get out of here. <laughs> or he'd say, Oh yes, be a priest. Um, just go up to a room now. We'll sell your things. <laughs> sell what you have to the poor and follow me. <laughs> That's right. And we talked for a couple, we've talked for about a year before, before I uh, agreed to do the postulant program, what we used to call the candidate program, but and now you know I'm you know f- almost almost thirty years into priesthood, and I tell you, on my worst day as a priest, I wake up and thank the Lord, sweet Jesus, I didn't go to law school, noble <laughs> profession, but it sure wouldn't have been right for me. Yeah, 
So what was it about Holy Cross as opposed to other religious orders or diocesan priesthood that eventually drew you in and said, I want to join this band of brothers, as, as you all often talk about? I looked at the diocese and, and really my my hometown, we didn't have a, we had a church, but we didn't have a priest that we had a priest that would come in on weekends. Generally, they were men who were good men, but they were overworked. They were tired. Hmm. And I just, it didn't look like a very good life. What hmm. I saw um, from diocesan priesthood, I looked at a couple of other orders, but I really resonated with Holy Cross in the sense that they were preachers. They were educators. I really loved the diversity of ministries that I saw in Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, I always thought, you know, I, my big goal in Holy Cross was to become a residence hall director yeah. because my own residence hall director had such an impact on my life. <laughs> it's uh, it's about the only thing in Holy Cross that I haven't done yet. Maybe someday <laughs> I will. Uh, <laughs> but that attracted me. And I really, and I really, I, I already knew people in Holy Cross respected them. I'd had them as professors in my dorm and I made quick friends in Holy Cross once I joined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great to hear. What was the reaction of family, friends, peers at Notre Dame once you finally made the decision and said, I'm going to I'm going to do this? Well, I the first time I ever told my parents was at Junior Parents Weekend mm-hmm. at Notre Dame and we were walking around the lake and I knew they'd be upset, so I tried to couch it in the most um the easiest language I could. I said, "You know, mom and dad, I was thinking that maybe someday I might want to pursue the question of talking to somebody about the possibility maybe of <laughs> being a priest someday. Right. And we, we were walking by, we were walking to the lake. I was in Holy Cross Hall, by the way. And so we're uh-huh. walking down the lake and we're at the corner where the geese are. Right. And they, uh, when I said that, and they stopped and they turned toward me and my mother said, David, honey, is something wrong? <laughs> and they, they had the most forlorn and sad look on their face uh, because they had, you know, they had hopes and dreams for me, and and I don't blame them at all. And and they had not had really positive experiences where they'd seen priests as very happy people. Interesting. I don't blame them at all. Yeah. So I put it aside for about for about six months, and then finally I had to do something, and I explained it. And they were then they were cool. They, you know, if saying if this is what would if you if you think you need to do this. And this would make you happy. And this is where you're called and we'll support you. And they have. And now they're, mm. of course, they're delighted. My, yeah. um, thanks, yeah. God, I still have my parents with me. And yeah. they've been a wonderful support through all of my life in Holy Cross. Yeah, well, that's interesting that sometimes God's call can be quite persistent, even when <laughs> we those that are love us and are the closest to us might might not quite understand it. But that's great to hear that through your time as a priest, they've come to understand where that deep joy is coming from. Yeah. So this this first stint at Andre House, had you been ordained a priest at that point? Well, I actually did a year there when I was in the seminary. I took, we call it in Holy Cross a regency. I took a year out of studies to go work there. So I worked there for a year mm-hmm. in 1987 to 88, and I just loved the work so much. Yeah. So when I was newly ordained, um, I was ordained in April of 1991, and in June of 1991, I went down to Phoenix and I took over at Andre House, so I was a I was a very young priest at the time, yeah. and um, it, it was it was really really wonderful. And you mentioned that experience in Chicago at the Urban Plunge, where the, there are a lot of connections of some things that you saw at Andre House of 
we, we can't quite quantify our successes, but we, I know that this is an important thing to be doing. Did you experience some of those same things there? I did. I, I would say that I, anybody who does that work and there's still, you know, there's still people there. There's still people who volunteer to do a year of their life, a year of service there. There's still Holy Cross people there. Mm-hmm. I think for the people who are at, do volunteer work like that or a part of service work like that, you have to have some kind of a faith foundation for it because the results aren't always apparent. Mm-hmm. You don't always know what it is. And sometimes really what you're doing is just trying to love somebody mm-hmm. and show somebody some respect and dignity. And maybe that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that in the years that I was, that I was there as director, I found incredible um, satisfaction. It, when somebody was ready to change and when somebody was ready to take steps in their life, that would just fire me up and mm-hmm. I would be so anxious to help. And as other people on the community that I worked with there in the same way. And so you really got to see miracles of people whose lives were dramatically changed. You, you had to wait if somebody had to be ready. Um, right. I remember one night there was a, um, a Native American man, and he was uh, new to the line, new to the soup line. And I was mm-hmm. walking up down the line talking with people and introduced myself. He introduced me. We were talking for a while, and he just kind of casually said, you know, I'm here because I'm a really I'm really hardcore alcoholic. Hmm. What happened that that week I had been to a meeting where the, there was a Native American center for sobriety, and they were, you know, offering, you know, people beds in this place. So I start spouting out to this guy, oh, there's this program, this program. I think you can get into this program, this program. And he said to me, dude, it took me 20 years to get this messed up. He didn't say messed, by the way. It took me 20 <laughs> years to get this messed up. You aren't going to fix me in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> So so we became friends. I don't know if he ever went into the program or not, but at least he had a friend when he came to get dinner at night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's similarities, right, to how God waits for us. I think of the prodigal son and the father as he he waits for his son, not, not knowing whether the son will come to his senses. And that story he does. But there's a lot of parallels there to how God waits for us sometimes to, to wake up and, and, and come seek the mercy that, that he's offering for sure. Absolutely. And then you mentioned that when you were at Andre House, you started to realize the power of cinema, and then that led you down the path where where you currently are. What What is it about that genre that you think is so powerful that, that speaks to people and connects them to stories? First of all, this was early 90s, so it's really before the internet. Mm-hmm. But television was the way that people got news. Television is what what struck people. I'll, I'll give you an example. By the my, by, the last years I was at in Phoenix, I had really good working relationships with reporters, and they would call me uh, if there was something happening nationally with homelessness. They'd give me a call and ask ask for a quote, and so that happened frequently. And occasionally, somebody would say, "Oh, Father, I read you know read your name in the." the newspaper and that's fine. I didn't do it for the accolades, but sure. that was telling. One night a volunteer was came to me really excited, just just real excited that he'd done this huge favor for me. And the favor was this. I was going to push the button on the Arizona lottery machine on the 10 <laughs> o'clock news. So they I go down to the station. I'm embarrassed. I'm not really that hot on lotteries because it's 
from my mind, a waste of money. But right. this fr- my friendship with this person, I didn't want to disappoint. So, I, And I thought, who's going to see this? You're on screen for five seconds. Right. So I go and I push the button on the machine and they, for the daily pick three or whatever it is. For the next week, <laughs> people at the post office, in the grocery store, at the parishes where I served, came up to me and said, oh, I saw you on the news last night. <laughs> and I, I said – Television is what people are looking at. And now that's even more true in video. I mean, the the I haven't looked at the most current statistics, but most of the time, YouTube is the biggest search engine if people are looking for information. Mm-hmm. Even bigger, many months, it's even bigger than Google. Yeah. If people have a question about something, they go, they go to a video first. Right. Yeah, it's amazing the proliferation of that in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, you're talking about the early 90s and 20, 30 years later, how how things have changed. And, and we continue to adapt, as you said, to, to evangelize. So, Well, it's really mind-boggling. When I started film school, YouTube was – I started film school in 2005, mm-hmm. and YouTube was just getting going. By the time I – and when I started film school, everybody had to work on film. Hmm. I was the last class. I graduated in 2008 – my class was the last class that had to finish our thesis films on film. Mm-hmm. And then everything went to video. And then the explosion of YouTube, um, the number of hours of footage that's uploaded every second, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. And uh, um, the amount of reach you can have is really, is really mind-boggling. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an ever-changing world. Can you give us some insight into family theater productions, what that is and, and what you all do there. Sure. Family theater productions was started in 1947 by venerable father, Patrick Payton. He was a Holy cross priest. He came to Hollywood to, to uh, work in radio and he did. He started a, a weekly radio show. It was on, on Sunday nights on the mutual broadcasting system, which was the second largest radio network at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's really kind of a, a miracle that this priest who actually knew very little about the media got a national radio show mm-hmm. you know, within four months of coming to Hollywood. But he did. Over the years, the kind of media that we created uh, changed. Uh, Father Peyton started doing television in the late 1940s. He got into film in the 1950s. A lot of his time and effort went in then to face-to-face events. He did huge rosary rallies, mm-hmm. but he still did media in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In the 80s, he did these huge holiday specials where there'd be musical acts, there'd be a little fervorino that he would give. The They had big stars in them. When I was a freshman at Notre Dame, freshman or sophomore at Notre Dame, Bob Newhart came to campus hmm. and did a concert at the Snipe Museum. And that actually was recorded for one of Father Peyton's specials. Father huh. Peyton was there. So it's kind of fun to look at that footage now. I can see some of my friends in the audience. But but so Father Bateman, late, very late in his life, did these television specials. When he died, it was – well, first of all, television changed. In the 1970s, before the 1970s, each station had a certain number of public service hours they had to do, they had to give, so that stations were always looking for content. Okay. In the 1970s, two things changed. One is that most stations went to a 24-hour broadcast day. Before that, you're way too young to remember this, but it used to be that at 10 o'clock, sometimes at midnight, you'd get like this test pattern. They'd play the Star Spangled Banner, and then you'd get a test pattern because they'd go (laughs) off the air for six hours. Well, that didn't happen anymore. And then secondly, they dramatically reduced the number 
of public service hours. So if stations still had to do, let's say, six public service hours a week, but they could put them on at two in the morning. So the kind of the outlets for, for family theaters were you know, weren't there. And okay. our evangelical brothers and sisters bought time, but we didn't. So hmm. it changed a lot. We started to come back with the advent of religious cable, especially EWTN and some mm-hmm. places that started playing some of our older things. And then we started producing short uh, dramas and stories, mainly for religious education. We did a bunch of documentaries in the 70s and the 80s. We did a a documentary on Father uh, Father Hesburgh in 2004, mm-hmm. uh, God Country Notre Dame, and you know some things that we we partnered on a documentary called The Face, which was a history of the face of Jesus in art. Hmm. Uh, that was played at Easter for about six years in a row on ABC. So th- yeah. that kind of stuff. Starting in 2000, about 2012, we we completely got out of radio. And we decided we were going to get back into features and we were going to focus on features, short format video content for the internet, and then and then social media. Our organization paired with we're part of a large organization, but our total organization has about one point four million social media followers. Yeah, wow. And so we have a, a pretty large reach. We have about five million, five million, six million views a year on our videos. So um, on YouTube. Yeah. And then our stuff still is licensed for television and and is played around the world. Yeah, that's that's tremendous and it's great to be getting such positive content out there. As you finished your your education in this field and started to get your feet under you, what did you find was or were some of the characteristics of your own style or or skills in storytelling that really lent itself well to this work? Filmmaking is one of the most collaborative arts forms there is. In fact, sometimes it bothers me when they say, oh, it's a, you know, it's a um, Tom Cruise film or it's Mm a Martin Scorsese film. Mm -hmm. There's literally hundreds or thousands of people that are behind it. Right. And, and, And I think the skills that I had of bringing teams together and communities together uh, at Andre House and other places that I'd worked really helped with the idea of trying to build teams and build build collaborative teams, creative teams to put together media projects. Mm-hmm. So, and really, um, I, I really love to work with creative people. I, I do a little bit, uh, I, I dabble in things like camera and I dabble in a little bit of writing, but really <laughs> I'm a producer. Mm. I'm the person that kind of brings the team together and helps make sure they, they have what they need, who champions the story. And so, and that's, I think, I think that's probably my, my place mm-hmm. <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the, in the credit role of, of, uh, of life in the, in the media industry right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's important to have that, that kind of glue that brings uh, so many different skills and people together, especially with projects that large. Yeah. I, I, we sometimes we're watching whatever it is, uh, Netflix show or movie or something and, oh, well, the credits roll it people don't always think about or i certainly don't just the number of people and hours that went into producing something that i can just sit down and watch and not right. think much about that but so much seems to go into it to get to that to get to that finish line it really does and if you think that every single person on that credit roll has training has education hmm. especially for a big film you know there there are people that are at the top of their the top of their profession if it's 
if it's a big film or even a little film, it, you know, it's people that put in a great deal of time. Sometimes when you see it, like it, when you watch a restaurant scene the next time in, in a film or a television show, realize that every one of the people in that restaurant scene are actors who are paid. Right. And there are some actors that do background for years before they get a speaking part or before they're noticed. Um, and, but, but probably every person who you see in background has training, mm-hmm. has gone to school, you know, has, has paid their dues and is there to support the working of, of the craft. So that, yeah, there's so much talent that's required and it goes into making a good movie or a bad movie for that, for that matter. <laughs> uh, but it just, either way. It takes, yeah. I, I forget which director said that the, the great tragedy is, is it's, it's just as much, it's just as hard costs just as, as much money and takes just as much time to make a bad movie as a good movie. <laughs> so oftentimes Hollywood is sort of thought of as, you know, an increasingly secular place or a place that uh, is, isn't as friendly to, the church or values. What's been your experience of living in that area and working in this industry uh, in kind of this particular area of, of evangelization through, through video and film and cinema? Great question. First of all, I'd say that I've met some of the most, most faithful people I've ever met. I've met in the film industry, Hmm. Uh, people that are, are Catholic or or whatever faith. And mm-hmm. I think if you're going to be a person of strong faith, it has to be strong faith. There's, it's hard to be lukewarm and, and, and really keep serious about your faith yeah. in Hollywood. So I, there are some incredible people of faith and they're really anxious to meet and collaborate and do things that they can be proud of. The second group of people in Hollywood, I would say are, are business people. Hmm. Uh, they're people that uh, want to, you know, they're in it to make money. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think one of the things that made Hollywood hard for people of faith for a long time was, is that Hollywood really lost faith that there was a Christian audience. There was mm. a Catholic audience. Okay. Um, after the 1950s, when the bishops, you know, the bishops really didn't, our, you know, Catholic bishops and pastors really don't have the authority to tell people to go see a movie and they'll see it or tell them not to go see it and they won't see it, that those days are gone, mm-hmm. but there's still an audience. So that's changed. So now there's quite a bit of interest in faith friendly, either faith-based content or in values driven content. And I think the big shift was the 2004 film, the passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film, Yeah, because nobody thought that film would work. Uh, Mel Gibson had he couldn't raise money for it. He put in a lot of his own money, and he reached out to a lot of different people, and nobody believed that that film would would work. and And now it's the highest grossing R rated film in history. Mm-hmm. It's this, but that that opened people's eyes that yeah, there really are people out there that will watch religious films. So you've had a string of faith based films over the years. Some of them are, are I I call like Christian home movies. You know, we love, you know, there's audience that love to see them because they, they see themselves portrayed, right. but they aren't necessarily great stories with universal appeal. But there's more and more things that are done where the production values are right up there with Hollywood films and that are where the stories are told in really compelling ways. And that's what we need more of. Mm-hmm. 
there, there's there's a group that's hostile to Christianity and hostile to religious of any hostile to religion of any kind, and that's that's just part of the reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's you know there's there's probably some discrimination because of that. But I tell you, if you can, if for people that a company or a person that can create beautiful projects that are with compelling stories, you're going to do okay in Hollywood. Hmm. Yeah, that's really encouraging and, and hopeful to hear, just even as a, a consumer of these things. And um, you think about good good films to share as a family or things like that. And the, I, I agree that there's there's definitely still an audience there. You mentioned Father Peyton, and I do want to get to him and his and, and, and the film. Before we get in specifically to him, I do want to ask you about models of holiness in your own life. We typically ask us at the end, but I want to give time to talk about Father Peyton. But who have been some of the models of holiness that you have really looked up to? And what are some of the principles of holiness that you try and live your life by? The first person that comes to mind is my mother. My mother is naturally kind. And my mother naturally looks for the person who's not be, who's not showing up or not included or mm-hmm. needs help. And without having to turn to a program or, you know, um, a structure sheet in my hometown. Um, and I'm from a small town where you kind of know people and where they're at. So she's one. A woman named Marsha Cartwright comes to mind. I met Marsha when I was at Phoenix. Marsha was a woman who had dyslexia. Lots of trouble in high school, got pregnant early, kept the child, got married. Marriage was was pretty troubling, got divorced. Mm. She had to support herself. So she made her way through and became a manicurist. Mm. She she prayed a lot and she listened so well. And she found that she was listening to her customers and that what her customers were talking about were really religious and spiritual things. Mm. So Marsha went and got a degree, uh, not a degree, a certification from the diocese. It took her four years uh, in spiritual direction. Hmm. And she never told any of her clients that she did it. She only did it so she could listen better and so that she could try to um, direct people and ask questions better. She volunteered every week at Andre House, too, and so she just had a natural, natural sense of of charity, but I, you know, just somebody who was so attuned to people and the spiritual depth of people. The other person that really came to mind is a person named Michael McQuaid. Michael worked at Andre House as a volunteer. He had a big real estate company, managed properties all all across Arizona. Mm-hmm. But he started coming with his confirmation group and was really taken with with the work with the homeless. And he did a lot for Andre House in the years that I was there. By about 10 years after I left, he left his work in real estate and became the director of the city shelter, hmm. the, which, which he developed into a homeless services campus in, in, in downtown Phoenix. It's still there. Huh. And he just had a love for people. He could, he, could, he could be in any group, but all of it was motivated by his faith. He loved his family. And I, I think of Michael, too, because he just passed away. He died of COVID hmm. uh, in April of this year. Wow. And so in Holy Cross, my, my, great, uh, my great mentor was Father John Gerber, who was the rector of my seminary, hmm. a man who really listened to people, 
um, he was a, he was prophetic in his own way. He really read the signs of the time and wasn't afraid in his own way of, of pointing at the sin and the grace that was present around us. And he called us, he called us to that. He called me to that, to try to look at the world. And it's easy to see all the sin in the world. And then you miss the grace. It's easy to be Pollyannish and only want to see the grace in the world and miss the, the, the patterns and the, the structures of sin that can be there. But he really called for you to be balanced and look at both. So those are some of the people that come to mind. Yeah, just uh, beautiful, beautiful stories. And I think it's always so inspiring to look back and, and see those and, and try and emulate the behaviors and characteristics of uh, people that we look up to. Uh, of course, Father Patrick Payton was, probably could be included on that list, given where you are and what you're doing. You you gave us some insight to him, but could you tell us some more about Father Payton as well as the film about his life? Sure. Father uh, Payton uh, was born in Ireland in County Mayo. He was the sixth of nine children. He worked on the farm. All the all the people in his family worked on the farm. Uh, and he so he had he went to school sporadically. He probably got the equivalent of a sixth or eighth grade education in Ireland. And then he had to work. Problem was there wasn't much work in Ireland. So when he was about 19, he and his brother Tom migrated to the United States and they went to Scranton, Pennsylvania. They had one older sister who had already moved to the States and was living there. And they thought they were going to become millionaires, you know, <laughs> just with these these dreams. Right. He had visions of being a real estate mogul. Well, uh, Tom finally got a job in a coal mine, and Pat <laughs> uh, got a job as a janitor in the cathedral at St. Joseph's Cathedral in Scranton. Hmm. But that's in those hours in the cathedral sweeping. He's the first one there in the morning, last one there at night. Lots of time to just be with the Lord. And he really found a calling. And, and he and Tom shared that. A group of Holy Cross priests and brothers came through. Holy Cross used to have a, what we called the mission band. They would go around and preach parish missions. Yeah. So when Holy Cross came to Scranton, uh, Pat and his brother Tom talked to these Holy Cross priests, told them of their desire and even though neither Pat nor Tom had much of an education yet, they accepted them. Hmm. So they came to Notre Dame. At that time, uh, Notre Dame had a high school seminary. It was called Holy Cross Seminary. It's where the Holy um, – well, it became Holy Cross Hall later, and now it doesn't exist. That building was torn down. Right. But they did high school there, and then they, they did uh, undergraduate at Notre Dame. And, and Pat did incredibly well. He, he actually was very bright. And uh, he loved school, and he sailed. He sailed through. Uh, he went at the time. Our theologian was in Washington D.C., and so he and Tom were in Washington D.C. And uh, in October of 1937, Pat Payton got a severe case of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. So they brought him back to South Bend through the infirmary at Notre Dame, and then ultimately he went to one of the local hospitals. He was near death. And uh, they, you know, they called in his family. They told him to make peace with God. And a professor from Notre Dame, a Holy Cross priest named Cornelius Haggerty, they called him Con Haggerty, came in and visited Pat and said, you know, look, I know you have a relationship with God. I know you believe in the Blessed Mother. She'll be as good to you as you believe she'll be. Believe in her. Hmm. And that triggered something. And he prayed like he'd never prayed before. And that night he felt physically healed. It took a, he was still weak from being in bed, and he had a lot of recovery to do, but he felt a healing. He felt his body had changed. 
it took a while to convince the doctors to do a chest X-ray because he wasn't scheduled one for a few months. Hmm. But when they did the chest X-ray a few weeks later, the tuberculosis was completely gone. Huh. And the doctors at the time said, "There's no medical explanation for this. This you know, you, this man should be dead." Well, that made uh, Peyton so grateful that he was looking for a way to repay this gift that he'd been given. And he prayed about what to do. His, he was still recovering in a way. So he, his first assignment was a chaplain at a Holy Cross Brothers School in Albany, New York. So he was up in Albany, and he was praying about what to do. And it came to him that what he wanted to give the families of the world what he had had, was, uh, and his family, he felt, had grown close through their daily family prayer. Mm-hmm. So this young priest, only two or three years ordained, starts a national campaign for the family rosary, the family rosary crusade, they called it. He called it. He wrote every bishop in the country. I, it, one of his biggest miracles is he got the permission from Holy Cross to do that because at that time, you know, we were pretty locked down um, mm-hmm. as Holy Cross people. And right. somehow our provincial and our superiors just gave him free reign to do this. Mm-hmm. And he ran with it. So he had a he got a, he got a lot of attention, but then he, dis, he discovered mass media. Started doing a little local radio, that turned into a desire to do national radio, and um, so he got involved with media. And um, I, I found him inspiring. His faith is one thing, but and he was people who knew him said he was kind of a shy man. He wasn't you know somebody who was the life of the party. But when he was talking about a mission or when he had something that he believed that he was called to do, he just he just went about it with this incredible energy and mm. um, persistence. So an example of that is he wanted to get airtime on the mutual broadcasting system. And they told him, yeah, all right, but you have to have a big star. You have to have this. You have to have that. And he said, OK, who's the biggest star I could get? And they said, Bing Crosby. And he said, okay. So somehow Peyton gets Bing Crosby's home phone number and calls him at his home in Beverly Hills on Good Friday of 1945. Wow. Uh, Bing Crosby would have been like the Justin Timberlake of the day or the Drake of the, of his day. I mean, he was huge. He was everywhere. Yeah. You know, so – but he says yes. So he had his first radio show on May 13th, 1945 – then he wanted to do it every week, so he came to Hollywood. He came to Hollywood. He started meeting stars. At first, they met Catholic stars that worshipped at local parishes, people like Loretta Lynn and Marino Sullivan and Gregory Peck. But later, you know, he had on his radio show, he had stars like Jack Benny and Jimmy Stewart, Kirk Douglas, so on and so on and so on. So he really became well-known through the radio show. Like I said, it was on, it was on uh, Sunday nights um, from 1947 to 1968. Each, each night was a story. It was a story about a family that overcame some kind of a difficulty. Mm-hmm. One of the great kind of moments of choice in Peyton's life was Mutual said, all right, we'll give you the airtime. You can tell these stories, but they have to appeal to everybody. And um, they have to be ecumenical. And to help that, Here's a list of words that you can't say. And the words were things like Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, non-denominational, evangelical, church. He couldn't even say the word Bible for the first two seasons. So all the stories are sort of these, these, and I think it's probably the greatest thing that happened to him because the storytelling had to be more universal. Yeah. And um, they ended up, they ended up being, we remastered these and they're still available. They still play on, on, 
on radio stations to this, you know, to this day hmm. in rerun. And so he did this incredible thing. But in person, he had this incredibly compelling, compelling sincerity. He wasn't a great orator. You can read his speeches and there, there aren't a lot of great quotes in it. Mm-hmm. But when you see him preach, when you see him talk, it's, it's just, it's spellbinding. It's, hmm. it's hard not to, it's hard not to watch. And so he was, he did over, four, over 500 in-person rallies and these were huge events. He filled the Yankee stadium. He, uh, he had 500,000 people in Golden Gate Park. Um, he had rallies in Rio and in, in South America that were um, over a million apiece. Um, his last rally was in Manila in 1987 and that had 2 million people at it. Mm-hmm. So, he had this incredible presence that he took around the world. He was an incredible man. Yeah, it's. I had a chance to know a little bit more about him and and see a preview of the film, and just just incredibly moving. And I, I'm I'm too young to have known about him during his lifetime, but you know it's pretty remarkable to see the reach that he had. How did it come about that you wanted to do this film called Prey? Well, I, when I started to work at Family Theater in 2008, we had a room in the lower level of our building on Sunset Boulevard we called The Vaults. And it had every form of recording device you can imagine since 1947. <laughs> we even had old discs, you know, we um, these huge discs that the radio shows were initially uh, recorded on. But we had every, every size of film, 32, 16, 8 millimeter film. We had all sorts of video. And I started to digitize things, mm-hmm. mainly for archival purposes, but found in them that there was just this incredible footage of Father Peyton. And he, and again, I found him so compelling. At the same time, Father Peyton's cause for sainthood was advancing to Rome. The, he had been declared a servant of God in the early 2000s. Uh, so they had conducted hundreds of interviews with people that had worked with him. They'd gathered everything that he'd ever written and to present to the Holy See. And so with that, he was declared venerable. They said that in his life, this man was a holy man. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're getting letters and emails from people around the world who are claiming that they're experiencing healing through the intercession of Father Peyton or healing in their families. Mm -hmm. And so it looked like and still looks like that that maybe the the church is considering Father Peyton for beatification. So we wanted to make it seem with this great footage, this great content that we had and this the situation happening, that it would be a great time to put together a film about him, to introduce him and his message to a new generation of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited and uh, pray for the success of, of the film that, it, that gets out there. What do you think, if you had to boil it down, what is Father Peyton's message that resonates not only when he was living, but still today? Family is the heart of everything. Family is the heart of the development of the person. It's the place where we learn to love, to hope, to forgive, to trust. It's the place where our most important formation happens. And really, it's the place where whether our education happens or our love for education or, or our openness to education happens. It's the place where our faith is developed. And then... And family is everything. So family is the smallest unit of the church, mm-hmm. that the church won't, can't be strong if families aren't strong. Family is the heart of a society, and that societies can't be strong 
if families aren't strong. And Father Peyton really wanted to help families be strong in one another, but also to be strong for the church and the world. And he believed that that would happen if they were strong in their faith. His great phrase, the family that prays together stays together, really Mm -hmm. sums up his thought that prayer was the way to unite people, both, you know, unite people horizontally with the people around them, the people in their household, the people that they love most, but unite vertically with God, our creator. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful message and a timeless one, uh, which is, uh, you know, another good reminder for us today in our families do you hope to see some kind of renewal that is spurred on by the sharing of this story through film? We do. In fact, with the film, we're going to um, we're going to start a pray together now campaign, mm-hmm. and we're going to encourage families to try family prayer. We've done studies. Uh, we we collaborated with uh, with CARA, which is the Center for Applied Research into the Apostolate. It's a it's a um, research institute connected with Georgetown University. Right. We, we connected with them and we did research about 2015 about the spiritual life of families uh, in the United States. And the good news is we found that most Catholic parents pray on some regular basis. Mm-hmm. But we also found that most people prayed alone. Yeah. They, uh, other than going to, going to Mass together, perhaps – that they weren't praying even with their spouses. And we asked why, and the answers were quite varied, but they centered around, well, some had not, didn't have any lived experience of it. So they're, you know, they had no experience of family prayer growing up. Some people were intimidated because they thought their spouse might have a different kind of spirituality. A lot of people just said, you know, they didn't know how, and they think it would be awkward to approach it. Sure. So one of the things we hope from the film and the resources that we've developed around the film is that people will see in the film a modeling of others who've begun family prayer and, and see what it you know see what fruit it can bear. Mm-hmm. Understanding that it's not going to be the same for every household. Some families will do a whole rosary. Some families will pray grace at meals. Some people. Some families will share petitionary prayers where they, you know, they, they, they say prayer intentions out loud with one another. It's going to vary pretty dramatically, mm-hmm. but just the act of praying together can, can really be a gift for everybody in the household. Yeah, certainly a stabilizing force for people. And I think even during the pandemic, people have had more opportunities to be together and to pray mm-hmm. together sometimes in unique ways. And so it's a, a good invitation for us to do that. When you started to make the film. There's always kind of the the stories behind the story of, uh, you know, as we were going along making the film, surprises happened or, or people had revelations. Was there anything like that in, in making this film that you thought was really notable or meaningful or you felt like Father Peyton was, was looking down on you, so to speak? Yeah. Even for a documentary, you, you have to cast a documentary. You have to look for the people you're going to include in the documentary. Sure. And the producer, who's an incredible young filmmaker named Megan Harrington, she's just incredible work. She worked on The Dating Project. She was the producer on The Dating Project. I don't know if you heard about that, but I a have, beautiful yeah. film that came out last year. And then a young director named John Sippity worked on it too. And John and Megan really talked to dozens of people that had had interactions with Father Peyton or people that had, had family prayer in part of their life. So part of it was just to sort through all these 
you know, wonderful people and how to include them in, in the, in the film. We had kind of, we had limited time and limited budget. So they were in Ireland for about five days. And in that five days, they did all these recreations uh, in the little village where Father Peyton grew up. One story that uh, John and Megan tell that I just love is that they really wanted a picture of, of Father Peyton looking out of the ocean. And by the way, Father Peyton's nephew is also a priest, and his name is also Pat Peyton. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the nephew, Pat Peyton, was going to do this reenactment for us, but you know, the, it was complete, it was stormy uh, that day in Ireland on the West coast of Ireland. Sure. You know, the, it, it was foggy. They didn't even think you'd be able to see the ocean from the, from the bluff overlooking the ocean, but they decided to drive out there anyway. As they pulled in the parking lot, the sky clears and the sun comes out and they, you know, they go and they get the shot and then it, they have about 20 minutes to get the shot and then it just disappears. But it's like Father Peyton said, okay, here's your, here's your finale. <laughs> here's your window. Yeah. And that shot ended up being the poster for the film. Wow. The shot that's on the poster for the film was that little kind of gift <laughs> that came in the, the, at the last second on the coast of Ireland. That's amazing. Anything else from the people, you know, any of the other families who are involved in it or, or, or neat connections to Father Peyton that people can anticipate? Well, there's a number of families that are in the film. Some of the, Two of the families got to know Father Peyton through his writing or through other things that had been done in the media uh-huh. so that they were kind of influenced that way. One of the families was just drawn to family prayer through, you know, because that's what they'd always done. But um, the families, I think, had a really interesting mix to that. And the families were so generous in, in letting us be in their homes and sharing with us the way, the way that, that they did. With And uh, that, I think that ends up being one of the most powerful parts of the film is, you know, the, the little vignettes about fam- these, the families that took to heart Father Peyton's message of praying together. Yeah, it's, it's really inspiring stuff. Now, a lot of people will hear this podcast episode in mid-October, but people also might stumble upon it later on. So where, if people are interested in viewing the film now and in the future, can you give us some sense of where they'll be able to do that? Well, the film opened on October 9th in theaters, and it will probably be available for theaters for a couple of months. So if if you want to see if it's in a theater near you, it would be good to go to the website for the film, which is praythefilm.com. That's praythefilm.com. There's a section there about where you can find a theater. If somebody has a group or a parish that they would like to bring the film to a theater, please let us know. There's a way to do that on the website. Mm-hmm. But also talk to your theater owner. A lot of, Right now, especially now, theater owners are looking for content. And so they might be really willing to let us book the, the book the film into the theater. So that's that's the initial run. It will be released on the usual digital platforms, for example, iTunes and Amazon after the first of the year, mm-hmm. probably mid the end of January, it will come out on a digital and DVD. We also are having a planning um, a parish screening program so that parishes could uh, bring the film and use it for a night of reflection. We have already on the website, we have resources, posters and bulletin announcements and other things that people could use to do that. So all those things are are ready to roll out. But that part, that that digital release and the 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 event release release um, will be after the first of the year. Okay, 
Thank you. That's really helpful and encourage everybody to, to go, go see it. Like I said, I had the chance to view it and, and was very moved and inspired, even thinking about our own work in Faith ND and, and what we're doing here, that utilizing the media you know, for digital evangelization and trying to respond to the signs of the times that Father Peyton is really inspiring in that way for his boldness in, uh, in what he did. So I was, I was certainly inspired by it. I'm glad you do great work at Faith ND. I, re- I, I get some of your videos through emails through the Alumni Association, and they're really wonderful. Father Peyton would be very happy with what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. But maybe by way of closing, 2020 has been a difficult year for a lot of reasons. The pandemic, the economic downturn related to that, of course, calls for racial justice in our nation. And in the midst of this, you know, you're trying to release this film and, and kind of the uncertainty that's uh, that's part of that and will theaters open. What do you think, if Father Peyton could, could speak to us now, how might he be encouraging us during what has been almost universally a difficult year for people? I think he would say these are the times when you have to draw on the internal resources that you have. And the most important resource we have is our faith the faith and belief and trust in God that will sustain us through the most difficult times. And, and even, and even beyond that for whatever crosses there are in this time, that if we commend them to God and hold them up in prayer before God, there will always, always, always be resurrections. Hmm. And father Peyton would say, let's be on the lookout for resurrections. I like that. That's really beautiful. And, uh, and a great way to end. Well, Father David, I want to thank you for taking the time out of a very busy schedule as as this film is coming out to talk with me and with our audience. Uh, thank you for sharing your own vocation, your own story, as well as to introduce us to Father Peyton. It's, uh, it's been a really inspiring time. Dan, thank you so much for inviting me and for the questions, and God bless you and your work. Thank you. God bless you and yours as well. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. If you'd like to know about future episodes of the podcast, you're welcome to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. There, in addition to hearing about more episodes of the podcast, you'll also receive a daily reflection on the day's gospel. We thank you for joining us, and until next time, you will be in our prayers. 